Our scripture reading this morning is found in the Old Testament in Genesis, the 25th chapter, where I'd like to read for you verses 19 to 34. Genesis 25, beginning at the 19th verse. Hear God's word. This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, and so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is this birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. In our reading in the New Testament, this Lord's Day morning is in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verses 14 to 17. In the New Testament, at Hebrews, the 12th chapter, beginning the reading at 14th verse, hear again God's word. Make every effort in peace with all men, and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could not bring about a change of mind, though he sought that blessing with tears. 
And thus far the reading of God's holy word. There's a lot of anxiety in our culture today. Anxiety not only because of world events. I mean, we've lived in a whole generation of anxiety because of the atomic bomb. Uh, We even have... uh, Psycho, uh, psych, psychological counselors, therapists who tell us, you know, there is a condition of generalized angst or fear that people have because of the impending doom the world could come to an end. We live in anxiety because of more particular things. We have a number of troops now that have gone to Saudi Arabia, and um, I'm no prophet. I don't know what will happen there, but it would certainly appear that we are on the verge of some major military confrontation. That makes all of us nervous. It makes me nervous. I have a son that would be of draftable age, and um, I'm not sure I want him to die in the deserts of Saudi Arabia. So I'm nervous about that. Others are nervous. I know that many people that are um, dependent upon the oil business are nervous about their own fortunes. Uh, many of us in this country are nervous about what it might mean in terms of inconveniences to us or higher prices or whatever it may be. We wonder about uh, the state of world peace and uh, the um, always precarious uh, power that we have in the world because of these sorts of events. We live in a nervous age because of particular events and impending doom. But I think, to be honest with you, we are a nervous culture and we are a fearful culture uh, for more general and mundane garden variety reasons than just that. I think we're, we tend to be very uh, concerned about our safety. We're concerned about the things we eat. And don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not going to ride a hobby horse against health food and all that sort of thing. Dr. Bonson needs to eat better, and that's all well and good. That's true. But I, I, sometimes this can go to a real extreme, you know? And we're looking, I mean, it gets to the place we joke that it seems like we're going to be in danger if we don't eat just or something. Everything's got uh, cancer-causing agents in it or something that's going to be bad for our health in one way or another. We're concerned about safety on the highway. How often do the um, advertisements that you see in your magazines and newspapers play upon that? Uh, one major tire company has a, a television ad that uh, features prominently a small child smiling you know, in a, in a, within a tire this is supposed to be communicating to you, you know. Obviously, we, we want to be protective of, of little babies and so forth, and you want to be protective of yourself on the road. We think in these terms. Things aren't secure. Things are dangerous. Watch out. What can we depend on? We live in a litigious society. Now, there's a word for you. We like to litigate. We... Um, we have so many lawyers, and I realize that, you know, I don't want to step on any toes of anyone in our congregation. There's a place for lawyers, and we certainly need good Christian lawyers. But I think we have too many lawyers in general. And the reason we have too many lawyers is because we have too many lawsuits. And the reason we have too many lawsuits is because we as a people think in those terms adversarially. We like to challenge one another. We want to run to law. We want to get, you know, the hired gun, you know, the lawyer to come in and to protect our rights, take care of us. Um, I suppose that's necessary for the spiritual state of our culture, the people in our culture. So, again, don't take me wrong. 
And during this last year, I was uh, taking care of business that many times we put off. We all know we're supposed to take care of our will and our final estate and so forth. We all know we're going to die. There's not a person in this room that doesn't know they're going to die, but we just don't get around to taking care of those things. Well, so I finally was motivated this last year to get some of those things in order. And um, I have a, a good attorney, and uh, he was warning me of things I need to know of and so forth. But I, I found it interesting. One provision, uh, standard provision being used in in wills and uh, living trust and so forth these days has to do that after my passing, if anyone should challenge my will or challenge my my living trust, that that person is automatically excluded from any benefits. And I, well, that, that's an interesting provision. Obviously, it keeps people from trying to get you know greedy after whoever it is is gone. Obviously, but why is that in there? I mean, it's not just a clever little device. It's there because, obviously, that's often. And so we build provisions in and protections and hedges around this and shielding ourselves from that. And we want to be safe. And are you getting the point? What can you count on today? I think the only thing that carries a guarantee in our day and age, anything that carries a guarantee in your life, the only thing we're thinking about is what our text would lead us to consider today, and that's the guarantee of an inheritance of a place in God's kingdom that God makes provision for. Now, you've already heard this morning that I'm going to be preaching to you in two parts. Uh, that's not just a device to keep you here for the afternoon service, but it just so happens there's so much to say, I need to break this up in two parts. So I want to talk about Jacob, Esau, and the birthright, and this morning we're going to talk about Esau in the birthright, and how he lost it, and what it means that he lost it, and what we should learn theologically about that fact. And I'm going to have to challenge you about whether you have an insecure place because you have the character of an Esau. This afternoon, I'll have you come back to hear this, but just to whet your appetite, I want to talk about Jacob in the birthright and how he received that birthright and what that teaches us about ourselves and how we have a secure place in God's kingdom. And so let's turn to part one of this message about security, and especially security in God's kingdom, and how we learn something about that from this strange story about Jacob and Esau and the selling of the lentil soup, the lentil stew, in order that the birthright could be gained by Jacob. The text this morning teaches us first that an insecure birthright has been sworn away by the reprobate Esau that Esau was of reprobate character, and he swore, he took an oath, to do away with a birthright that proved to be insecure to him. The Bible shows us that Esau despised a covenant relationship with God, and that advice is going to be crucial later, so listen to how I define the term when we get to that. He despised his covenant relation with God. And because he despised his covenant relation with God and lived as a reprobate, it turns out that what God had said at the very beginning about Esau and his character, what God had done, and even before the two boys were born in rejecting Esau, was confirmed by Esau's own character in the course of time. The name Esau was given to him, as you heard in the scripture reading this morning, at his birth, because he was a very hairy child. 
Uh, he grew up to be a hairy individual, a rough man of the countryside, a wild man. And he had another name that was given to him. He was also called Edom, which in Hebrew means red. And uh, the term red being applied to him pointed uh, to a sensual appetite for red pottage, particularly for lentil stew, the thing that he really enjoyed. And the Bible tells us that red, with his desire for that red stew, the lentil stew, was led to apostasy from God. Ask yourself whether your character, whether your desires, could be like Esau's, such that they would take precedence over your relationship with God. The character of Esau is seen in our text. He's the man of an open field, a hunter. Uh, the Bible suggests he was somewhat uh, violent, maybe cruel and harsh, a self-indulgent person, certainly an undisciplined and materialistic person. In the Bible, we have other desert hunters uh, described for us, men like Nimrod that you read of in Genesis 9. He was a mighty hunter, and the Bible calls him a rebel, a rebel against God, and someone who became a hunter for men, a person who established a tyrannical kingdom. Nimrod established of Babel, and Babel becomes a symbol of hostility to God. We also read in the Bible of Ishmael, the desert hunter, who had a wild disposition, who as the older son to Abraham was rejected from the promise that God made with Abraham. As Genesis uh, teaches us and Galatians 4.23 confirms, he was a child born according to the flesh, born according to Abraham's sinful desires. And so here you have Nimrod, you have Ishmael, you have these mighty hunters that are not really favored in terms of the biblical portrayal. And now comes Esau, another hunter, another man of the open field, another man of undisciplined character, another man after the flesh. The Jewish writings, which of course we don't take as inspired, but nevertheless they tell us something of the, um, the understanding of Esau that developed through Jewish history. Uh, the Jewish writings confirm the immoral character of this man Esau. You look at the book of Jubilee, instance. Jubilee says that Esau was perverse from his youth. He was full of evil thoughts. He married women from Canaan. He was violent, and he even stole from his parents. That's the kind of person he was thought of being. Philo, the Jewish philosopher, portrayed Esau as an unrestrained, impure, and lecherous individual. The later rabbinical writings see him as a thief and as a fornicator, as a blasphemer, someone who gave his father dog's flesh and bit his own father. I don't know where all this comes from, but you have to realize even these stories that come from human imagination have a basis in what was perceived to be this man Esau. Something, there's something evil about this man that leads him to write things like this. It's said that he committed five heinous sins on the day that he sold his birthright. Again, that's not biblical, but it tells you something of the character of the man as he was seen by the Jews. Esau was a wicked man, but I think the wickedness of Esau has been misperceived in much of what I just read for you. Because Esau's wickedness was not so much that he was lecherous, that he was violent, that he was a man of the open field. Esau was wicked because he despised a relationship with God.
And yet the Bible says he should have been as the firstborn son of his father Isaac. He should have been, the Hebrew expression is uh, the rosh, the head or the acme of his father's strength. He should have been the number one illustration of Isaac's strength and character. Uh, let's look at a couple of verses here. Genesis 49, excuse me, yeah, Genesis 49, verse 3. 49.3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength. That's the expression in Hebrew, the acme of my strength, excelling, excelling in power. Uh, we see the same expectation about the firstborn son in Deuteronomy 21, verse 17. Uh, the setting here is a law having to do with uh, polygamy and the right of firstborn not being lost. Verse 15 says, if a man has two wives, and so forth and so on. But look at verse 17. He must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. That son is the, and this is the expression, the first sign of his father's strength, the acme of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. And so in this culture, not only in general, Semitic culture, ancient Near Eastern culture, but particularly by divine revelation, it was expected that the firstborn son would be the father's pride and joy, the father's strength, the first sign, the leading illustration, the parent of what the father would want, not only for himself, but for his children. Esau should have been, you see, the pride and joy of his father, of his parents. And instead, he was someone who came to despise a covenant relationship with God. Let's look at the history of Esau here. In Genesis 26.1, we know that it was a time of famine in the land. Now there was a famine in the land besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, etc., we know it was a time when food was hard to come by. Esau, being a man of the field, would ordinarily not be troubled by that because he would just go out and get his own dinner. He would kill it and bring it in and barbecue it and have a good time. But in this particular case, as we read in Genesis 25, he apparently came in empty-handed from the field. He came in weary and hungry. And in extreme haste, in eagerness, he submitted to Jacob of an illicit compact, a cunning compact, to give up what was the most valuable thing in his life for one meal. And he did it. He was willing, the Bible says, to sell his birthright. It's very hard in 20th century, late 20th century America to explain to people the significance of the birthright because we don't follow that practice in our culture. Even Christian families rarely follow that. However, in that day and age, the birthright provided a double share of the father's inheritance to the firstborn son. And so let's imagine a man has three sons, and that's all of his children. When he dies, he has an inheritance that passes on to the children. Now, I dare say that when I said he had an inheritance, most of you will be thinking about his material estate, in a moment, I will point out that the inheritance was much more than that. However, let's just look at his material estate. 
If this man's net worth was amount of dollars, that would not have been divided in three equal portions and given to the three sons. It would have been divided in four portions, with the first son getting two of them and the other two sons getting the remaining two. Because the firstborn son gets a double share of the inheritance. He counts for two in the ratio and division. He gets a double share of the inheritance as well as a succession of the father's authority in the family. The firstborn son becomes the head of the house, to use our expression. And head of the house meant something in those days. The head of the house could cancel contracts, could uh, undo oaths. The head of the house could bind individuals in that household. The head of the house is the one who laid down the law and enforced the law within a family. Back before the division into a separate priesthood at the time of Moses, the whole priesthood belonged to the firstborn son. The promises of the father become promises made to the son. And so if I entered into a compact with a particular family, a family head, um, well, it could be a compact to be a slave, that would be a, a, a coming from a negative standpoint, or it could be a compact to provide something to you in perpetuity. When you die, that promise passes to your firstborn son. And so that all of the privileges and all of the authority and all of the estate of the father, you see, favors the firstborn son. And that's all typified in the fact that the material estate goes in double portion to the firstborn son. Now, in order to understand what Esau was giving away then, we have to go back and say, what did Esau's father have that would become his? And in order to understand that, we have to go back and ask what did Esau have that became Isaac's and would have become Esau's. And then we'll begin to understand the significance of the birthright. What is it that Abraham was promised by God? This was not just another earthly king or another earthly merchant or some slave or another human being. This was God who spoke to Abraham. And God said to Abraham, I will be the God of your family, Abraham. I will be your God and you will become my people, my specially chosen people, my favored people, the people that I will make provision for and love and save and make a mighty nation. Indeed, so mighty all the nations of the earth will be blessed in you, Abraham. That's what I'm going to do for you. I'm making covenant with you, Abraham, to save you and your offspring. Now we know, of course, because of the continuation of history and the greater revelation that is given to us, we know some of the greatness and richness of that promise and what that means. But even in that day and age, it should have been obvious when the living and true God, the creator of heaven and earth, enters into covenant with someone and promises to have that special, loving relationship. That's not something to take lightly. And that became Isaac's portion in this world and in the next, and would have been Esau's as well. 
The Bible tells us that a birthright can be lost by misconduct. We know later that Reuben's birthright was lost by promiscuity and it went to Joseph. However, a birthright could not, under ordinary circumstances, be arbitrarily reassigned. Yet the Bible says that what Esau did is that he sold his birthright. He treated the birthright like a piece of merchandise. He treated the authority of his family, the privileges of his father, the covenant with God, not to mention whatever material estate there would be. He treated that as just another piece of merchandise that he could do away with. He exercised sovereignty over that. He pretended that it was his to dispose of and to control. We read um, in some uh, archaeological find uh, of great significance uh, to Bible students has to do with um, the tell at Nuzu, and um, a number of letters have been uncovered at Nuzu. They're called the Nuzu letters, and in them we read of a birthright that was transferred to a younger brother for three sheep. And in this particular case, what we read of is mere stupidity. Someone giving up birth, a birthright for the sake of three sheep. In the case of Esau, however, what he gave up and what he presumed that he could sell amounted to apostasy of heaven, apostasy from the kingdom of God, apostasy from a covenant relationship, and the privileges of that with God. You see, Esau regarded his birthright as of no value unless it was profitable for this present life and for his immediate situation. What Esau did, according to the Bible, is he bartered away a spiritual good for an earthly good. He bartered away an eternal good for a fading good. He bartered away a relationship with God for the sake of one meal. He was a pragmatist. He was an existentialist. He was everything wicked in terms of our current day and age and its mentality. And we may have just such a mentality in our auditorium today. What would you be willing to give up for the sake of your immediate satisfaction and happiness? Would you give up a relationship with God? Would you give up your covenant standing with God for the sake of present enjoyment? Before you say, oh, that could never happen to me, stop and think about the ways in which we are tempted to do that very thing. It doesn't come in the form of somebody saying, hey, how about selling your salvation? Nah, it doesn't happen like that, obviously. Satan doesn't come to us and say, why don't you give up a relationship with God so that you can go ahead and sin right now? If you don't think that you are tempted to be an Esau, ask in all realism what your scale of priorities is in this world. What convenience takes precedence over holiness for you? What convenience takes precedence over worship of the living and true God for you? When are we willing to take stand against the way in which our culture does things? the way in which our faith does things, in order that we might be faithful to God. 
Give you an example, in our culture, the way to handle interpersonal problems is by way of gossip and backbiting. When are we willing to say, I will not be a gossip, I will not backbite, because I know that God calls me to a holy behavior that excludes that? How often, when I counsel people, do I hear them say, I guess everyone does it? And they do. Not just gossip and backbiting, but marital infidelity and anger and cutting corners in terms of honesty and financial integrity and lying and on and on and on the list goes. What is our scale of values? Is it conceivable that our present happiness, our present satisfaction, our own desires and our earthly estate are more valuable to us when the going gets tough, when the rubber meets the road, as they say, when it is really test of character, what is it that is most valuable to us? Are we Esau's? Esau came in from the open field. And I think if all things were equal, if everything was going well, you would find Esau a really good Christian. Pardon the anachronism, but you know what I'm getting at a believer and a follower of God. Esau would have been just fine if there had been no challenge in his life, if there had been no adversity in his life, if there hadn't been anything to really make the question of priorities come to the forefront. I don't think Esau went out looking to be a bad guy and to give up his birthright. But when Esau got hungry, we see what counted for him. First things first. And what was first in his life was filling his stomach. The Bible says that his wicked brother Jacob asked him to take an oath. This makes the story all the more terrible. An oath, well, an oath is a conditional malediction. Another nice big word for you, malediction. Malediction means to speak evil against. A conditional malediction is, may the following curse come upon me if I do not perform what I promise to perform. And so Esau comes in hungry, and Jacob says, if you want some of this stew, I want you to take an oath. Now, in the case of an oath, you have to have something that enforces the oath. And so in the giving of it, you cite the authority who will enforce the sanction, the malediction, the bad saying against you. And of course that means calling upon the name of God. For instance, may God strike me dead if... Da, 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 da. And so what Jacob was doing was asking Esau to take the name of God in the form of an oath that he swore to give up the privilege of the birthright to him. And the sad thing is that Esau's profane infatuation with this life was such that even the name of God did not make him hesitate to sell his oath. He was so addicted to his gluttony that he made God a witness to his apostasy. Can you imagine that? He made God a witness to his ingratitude. He said, by the name of God I give up my birthright privilege in a family that has been chosen by God. And you may wonder, why does the Bible have this kind of strange ending? 
Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate, drank, and then got up and left. Kind of a odd way to end the story. Well, I think because the Genesis account is pointing to the indifference of Esau, to his forfeiting an incomparable benefit in that he lacked all mourning for it. He did not come to his senses. When the stew was set to him, he doesn't pick up the spoon or whatever eating device he had and say, oh, I better think about this. He just digs in, he eats, and he leaves. That's the kind of person he was. And so we have the concluding sentence of our textual account, and so Esau despised his right of firstborn. He despised his birthright. Here the Hebrew word despise does not mean to revile in the sense of heaping scorn upon something. Esau didn't despise it in the sense that he said, oh, that birthright, you know, and then shaking his fist or something, or saying some wicked or maybe even obscene thing about it. He didn't revile it or despise it in that way. He despised it because he treated it lightly. He spurned it. He rejected it. It just didn't mean that much to Esau. And having despised the heir rights of Abraham, the father of the faithful, we go on to read in the Bible, he didn't value connection with Abraham's kindred any longer either. He ended up marrying two Hittite wives and then finally married one of his cousins. Later in Genesis 27, we see that Jacob not only was a wicked person and a wicked brother here, but he he stole the blessing, the final deathbed blessing of his father. And at that point, Esau is reprobated from the land to a place of desolation. And when Isaac would not reconsider after all that had happened, the Bible says Esau went out and wept, but he could not find repentance it was too late the weeping of Esau is portrayed to us in the Bible as self-centered sorrow there's a great difference between self-pity and repentance and I'm afraid many of us confuse the two we get sorry about our circumstances rather than sorry about our sin And we do not sorrow over disobedience, and we do not sorrow over unfaithfulness. We sorrow over the consequences of sin. And so Esau wept in self-centered sorrow. I want to warn you against a slogan that will probably surprise you that I'm warning you against you. It is often said in the evangelical uh, church, in the circles in which we, um, we find ourselves, once saved, always saved. I had a seminary professor who said once and got my attention by saying it, and I hope I have yours in saying it too. He said, the slogan, once saved, always saved, is a slogan straight from hell. It's exactly what Satan wants you to believe. Obviously, we need to be careful. Those who truly are God's elect, those who are truly saved, will always be saved. And you come back this afternoon if you want some reassurance about that. I'll give it to you. 
But when we have the idea that once we have made a profession of faith, or once we have come into a, a relationship with God's people, or once it appears to others that we are Christians, that we will always be Christians, and we can never give up the faith, and we can never do something rebellious and not repent of it, then we don't understand the wickedness of our hearts. And we have been lulled to sleep, and we become like Esau. And then something happens. Something comes along that draws us away from our first love. Something comes along that draws us away from faithfulness to our families or to our God. Something comes along that challenges our financial integrity or our character. And we find, lo and behold, we really don't care that much. And we fall into that sin and we continue in that and it doesn't really bother us. But we say, I was once saved and so I must always be saved. The divine destiny of Esau is seen here to be immutable, and yet the divine destiny did not force Esau to be the kind of person that he was. It is true, before Esau was born, God had chosen his brother Jacob over him. But you don't see in this text an Esau that is trying to be godly, trying to be faithful, following after the Lord, and the Lord says, no, I just arbitrarily said no to you. You must be turned away. God said that he would take Jacob over Esau, and lo and behold, in the course of history, Esau said, that's just fine with me. Now, of course, he wasn't saying it to the specific statement of God, but the character of Esau said, I don't really want a place with God anyway. When God does not choose someone to follow after him, you do not, for that person is desperately longing after godliness and wanting to be saved, and God just saying no. That's why most Arminians, I think, reject the doctrine of predestination, is because that's their image of predestination. That God's out there saying no to people who want to be saved, because he just arbitrarily decided not to have them. You have to understand that when God predestines an end, he also predestines the means to that end. And when he predestined the reprobation of Esau, he also predestined that in the course of time, Esau, by his own choices, would make himself reprobate. God did not have to force that against Esau's will. That was Esau's will. Very freely chosen. The elder shall serve the younger. God said that before his birth. In Romans 9, 11, Paul quotes from Hosea and makes it even stronger. Before they were born, God said, Jacob I love, Esau I hate. And this is very offensive to so many people who call themselves Christians. This is very offensive, and yet it is the very teaching of God's word. I would remind you, if you find this offensive this morning, that in the very passage where Paul says this, he says as well, who are you to reply against God? When someone says to me, I don't want a God who says, I hate someone in advance. My reply is usually, what choices do you have? Do you think that God is something like a, a cafeteria? You can choose the kind of God you want, what kind of you know, main course and dessert you can put together, a view of God that's pleasing to you. There is one only, the living and true God. 
And if you don't like his character, and if you don't like his ways, the problem's with you, God. But now having said that, that God's prerogatives and God's sovereignty have got to be guarded, what I want to tell you is the doctrine of God's sovereignty and predestination does not do injustice to man's freedom and responsibility. When you look at Esau, a man that we know in advance from the biblical story is reprobate, what you see is a man who grows up to act like a reprobate. Not a man who grows up desiring God and then being arbitrarily rejected. There is complete harmony between what God predestines ahead of time and what happens in history. So that man's integrity, man's choices, man's responsibility are not at all violated. Do see the harmony then of God's decree of election with human responsibility in the story of Esau. He was reprobated of God, but then in history showed himself to have a reprobate attitude, an immoral lifestyle. And what do we learn as God's people from Esau besides something about God's sovereignty and God's justice? We learn that we had better persevere. I want to talk to you just for a moment before we end now about perseverance. This afternoon I want to talk to you about preservation. They sound somewhat alike, but they are really two different things. The Bible teaches us we must persevere to the end. Athletes persevere. An athlete running a race perseveres to the end. A strawberry is preserved in jam. Okay? Now, come back and you'll get the strawberry message this afternoon. We'll talk about how God preserves his people by his grace. But God also calls us to be athletes and to persevere, not to be like Esau. And so in Hebrews 12, as we read it in our scripture reading this morning, the Bible exhorts us to persevere against an earthly mindset. Pursue sanctification, the author says, pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord watching carefully, lest anyone be excluded from the grace of God. Is that language that bothers you as a Calvinist? It shouldn't. You can be excluded from the grace of God because you have not watched carefully, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his own birthright. For you know that even when he afterward desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Esau is set forth in the book of Hebrews as an example of the apostate who abandons the hope of glory for the sake of things that are seen and not eternal. That is, he was materialistic. His scale of priorities was such that Esau would put a baseball game ahead of going to church. Esau would put silence in the presence of unbelievers over persecution for being faithful to God. Esau was the sort of person who would put his personal comfort and reputation before giving aid to other people or being willing to be considered some kind of a religious fanatic for what he was doing. I'm saying Esau was the sort of person that I am and that you are. And the difference between an Esau and a Dr. Bonson is going to be the difference, by God's grace, of perseverance. 
Christians called of God are called to persevere to the end, for he who perseveres to the end will be saved. Those who are profane like Esau don't give Christ's kingdom a real place in their concerns. They love the world, and they love themselves, and they love their comforts more than they love godliness. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, pursue sanctification, pursue holiness of attitude and conduct. Become like an Esau who later could find no place for repentance. If we want a place in God's sanctuary, brothers and sisters, we're going to have to learn to despise the meals that Satan will use to lure us away. Satan, just as effectively as Jacob, will get us to give up our birthright for the sake of what really pleases us and gives us immediate satisfaction. The scary thing is that Esau's barter was seen to be an irrevocable one. Later, he could not repent and undo it. Apostasy led him to divine rejection, and that could not be undone, which is one of the major themes of the book of Hebrews, it turns out. One must persevere. One must not turn back. One must not compromise. One must not be inconsistent. Look at Hebrews, the sixth chapter, if you want to pick up something of the theme and the exhortation and the warning of the book. Hebrews 6, beginning at the fourth verse. It's impossible for those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end it will be burned. And so God's blessing falls upon this congregation. The rain is there. What kind of ground are we? Do we bring forth the crop that God expects or do we bring forth thorns and thistles? What is the effect of your life? Now, there used to be a cute little thing way back in high school. You know, a little a pamphlet and a movie made of it and so forth. If you were to be on trial... And you had to prove that you were a Christian. How would you do that? How could you convince someone that you really are a Christian? What evidence is there that you are? Stand back and take an assessment of your life. What is the overall effect of your Christianity? Do you see people around you being blessed by your presence, by your word? Are you a peacemaker? Are you evangelistic? Are you somebody who brings integrity to a situation? Is holiness something that is obvious in your life? Or is it the case that most people who know you say, oh, he's a religious person, she's a religious person, that surprises me. Or if not surprised, you say, I, I, I wouldn't have guessed. That's you go to church every Sunday, do you? That's, wow. What do you know about that? Here's what God knows about that. When our lives do not bring forth the fruit of us, then we had better wonder if the thorns and thistles that are there are going to be burned. Perseverance. Pursuing godliness. Making spiritual concerns a top priority. Against an earthly mindset 
that is more concerned for our present happiness and satisfaction and values. There used to be a man in an evangelical testimony-related church that every Sunday evening would stand up and say, well, I'm not making much progress in my Christian life, but I'm established. And then the next week, he'd stand up and say, well, I'm not making much progress in my Christian life, but at least I'm established. And then again, you'd hear him the next week stand up and say, I'm not making much progress in my Christian life, but at least I'm established. So happened the man was a farmer. And one Monday, he was going to market with his wagon. He got sunk down to the hubs of his mud. And one of the Christians who attended the same church with him happened to be going by the road and called out to him, Well, Farmer Jones, I see you're not making much progress, but at least you're established. What do you daydream for? Where do you find your security in life? What do you hope for? What are your goals and your aims? Is growth as a Christian increasing evidence of holiness, an all-out love for the brothers and for the Savior Jesus Christ, a desire to grow and to know more of God and His Word? Are those the sorts of things that you can honestly say you hope and daydream for and pray to God for every day and then go out and try to achieve? Or do you think the things of this world the things that were immediately happy, the things that, uh, to be very honest, even unbelievers long for as much as you do, are those are the things that, uh, that dominate your thoughts. We need to persevere as Christians and not be Esau's. We need to persevere anticipating a heavenly inheritance. In Philippians 3.19, Paul exhorts us to press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, and mark those who are enemies of the cross. And here's his description of those who are enemies of the cross, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, whose end is destruction, who mind earthly things. And Paul says we must do that, he adds this in Philippians, because our citizenship, our homeland, our ultimate destination, is in heaven, is in the coming age, in the kingdom of God. Paul not mean this in some apple in the pie, pie in the sky, by and by kind of, you know, anti-earthly mentality. What he means is that we're pursuing heavenly, godly things. We're pursuing the new order of things that has been brought by Jesus Christ. We are following him, even in this life, knowing that we belong to another. We may be citizens in the United States of America, but our citizenship is in heaven. Jesus himself exhorted us in Matthew 6:19, saying, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, but in heaven. And why is that? He said, Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Esau's heart was in a bowl of stew. Where's yours? Lord, we come into your presence and ask you to forgive us.
because we're undone. We are assumed and self-loving and self-pitying and self-serving people. And we don't deserve to be called your own. We're not much better than Esau's ourselves. And we confess that, Father. We see that in ourselves. But we do ask you that before our own apostasy should become something permanent and immutable in our lives, that you, by your sovereign grace, would give us true repentance this morning. We ask that you might help us to so love the birthright privilege of being the children of God that we would long to be like our Heavenly Father, that you would give us hearts that pursue holiness and the fear of God, that you'd give us hearts that want nothing more but to serve you and to find our treasure in your very presence, indeed to find you our highest joy. We ask, dear Heavenly Father, that you would take away our learning, that you would take away our love of self, that you would take away everything that stands in the way of wholehearted devotion to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for myself and for these, my brothers and sisters, that you would grant us the grace of perseverance, that having named the name of Christ, we might follow him to the end and be concerned that we are consistent in that, that we not become a reproach to his name by our behavior, by our attitudes or our words, by our conduct, do pray that you would help us to give up the love of those pet sins that are in our lives and that you would keep us from compromising anything that we would put you second somehow. We pray rather that there would be no other gods and no other authorities and no other desires in your presence but that you would be God alone to us and we pray that you would help us to mark those who truly mind earthly things and do not love you in this way. We pray that you would help us to exhort one another to godliness and to build each other up here in this congregation. We pray you'd help us to pursue holiness, not only in our own lives, but holiness corporately as your people. We do pray, Father, that you would make us even as athletes that want to run the race, indeed to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and to forget those things which are behind and to strive after those things which lie ahead for the sake of the high calling in Christ that we have. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would bring us back also to worship you this afternoon, that we might learn of your grace and how you preserve us because we do need that. We need the assurance in your forgiveness because we are not all that we should be, but we do pray that you would help us to become that, that you would hasten the day when we are indeed glorified in your very presence and will live for all eternity with you. For we pray in your holy name. Amen.